all the trouble you've started? Be they a government, be they industry, be they organized labor, be they anyone, or human being. When the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part, you can't even passively take part, and you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop, and you've got to win the day to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. Revolution Radio of FreedomSlips.com, the number one listener-supported talk radio station, throwing ourselves upon the gears of the machine. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. You called down the thunder, well now you've got it. you tell them I'm coming, and hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! Revolution Radio! We did not engage in conflict that was out of line with our mission. Is it disloyalty? Is it sedition? Is it treason to oppose the hands of tyranny? Never! I will never send troops anywhere on a mission of that kind without telling them that if somebody shoots at them, they can darn well shoot back. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty! Oh, give me! A dark cloud is finally lifting across the world as U.S. military intelligence and their global partners are destroying the deep state criminal power structure that has ruled over our planet for hundreds of years. We are free with the God-given right, and we shall not yield that right to any power on Earth. Hi, I'm Scott McKay. The world is at, and I am your host on The Tipping Point. On Revolution Radio, where every Monday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, we bring you the latest in this ensuing takedown of this global criminal empire. That's an image of strength. You'll get the raw, hard truth here on The Tipping Point. So come join us Mondays, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, in Studio B at Revolution.Radio. Thanks for listening while we took that short break here at Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. Okay. Um, welcome to Free Association. Uh, you're listening to Revolution Radio. And it's, uh, it's 4 o'clock. It's just after 4 o'clock in the UK, uh, which means it's 11 o'clock on the East Coast in the States. Uh, Free Association is here every Saturday at 11am on Studio B on Revolution Radio and uh, on YouTube. I usually post it on YouTube about an hour or so after the show finishes. Um, I'm going to see if I can find other other places to put the show as well. I'm using the show as part of my podcast, so you can find find it on the podcast as well at Revolution. At, uh, radioprojects.podomatic.com if you miss any of them they'll, they'll, they'll all be there the archives are on Revolution Radio as well um, and they're all free so if I say anything interesting that you want to remind yourself about those are the places to find it um, I don't have a, a topic lined up I'm in a bit of a strange mood today so I, so I didn't do topic um, I had a and not very much sleep last night, so I, I ended up listening to a blues show, blues radio show at 5 o'clock this morning. 
and I hadn't been to sleep. So I fell asleep about six and woke up again about half twelve. So I've had about six hours sleep. I've had enough sleep to keep me going, but uh, not in the right place in the day, really. I'd have preferred it to be overnight. Can't be helped, though. That's just the way things are at the minute. Um, I'm much more on American time than I am UK time. Partly because Revolution Radio, partly because uh, I'm just automatically tuned to California for some reason. I always have been. I've had like this, this connection to California for a long time. I don't know why. Maybe maybe my mother was listening to to the mamas and the papas and and that sort of stuff when I when I was in the womb. I don't know. That would be about the right time. Sixty five, sixty six, sixty seven. I was born in sixty five, so maybe maybe she was listening to that sort of stuff. I don't know, but I've got a connection to California for some reason, and I'm tuned to the United States. So if I've got nothing else to do, my my body clock shifts into US time and then I find it difficult to get out of US time again. But uh, as soon as I get a job and get working again, I'll have to be up and, up and about at nine o'clock in the morning. I won't, won't have the luxury of, of being awake all night. So I'm discovering discovering new things all the time, though, because I've got all this time on my hand when there's nothing else to do. I'm on the internet a lot, and uh, I've discovered Podbean, which is a, a podcasting platform. I do my podcast at Podomatic. I want to talk about uh, the last couple of weeks that I've been posting there, uh, just because it's it's where my attention is at the moment. So. It might be useful to somebody. There might be something in what in what I've been doing that, that somebody can take a useful thing from. So I'll talk about it for 10, 15 minutes and see how we go. Uh, I did have I did have a, a documentary about Hawkwind lined up, and then there's been a conversation in the chat room about bands playing on the back of trucks, which is exactly what Hawkwind did for years and years and years outside of uh, festivals. They they used to do uh, free gigs outside of paid-for festivals uh, in, in the early 70s. So there's some synchronicity in that. I might play some of that as I go along, probably 20, 20 25 minutes of it, depending on how, how long I talk about the podcast, really. So let's, let's go for that. Let's see what, what I can talk to you about. So I set up this podcast about two, three weeks ago. Didn't do very much with it for the first week, and then I started posting uh, the radio show, my recording of the radio show uh, on there, and decided I was going to do a daily podcast. Now, a daily podcast isn't the same thing as a radio show, so the radio show is an hour, doing something daily. Uh, I wanted to start with something that I knew I could I could make consistent. So I've started with 10 minutes a day as my target for content, which which I don't find particularly difficult to do. And I can I can record on my phone and then just upload to Podomatic and it's a fairly easy system. So I don't really leave the flat the house at the moment for various reasons, but I've 
when I'm out and about, I can record in the park if I'm in the, the park or if I'm sat in Times Square, which is the biomedical centre in Newcastle, then I can record there as well. I found when I was recording radio shows there that the wind distorts my voice, but uh, hopefully I can find a spot in the in the corner where the wind doesn't distort my voice. I'm hoping that, that I can do radio shows out there in the summer. But it, it depends on the on the temperature, obviously the amount of sunshine and the amount of wind, whether it's going to work technically or not to do the radio show from out there. I've done guest slots before from from Times Square, from the centre of life is what it's called. It's a, a big biomedical centre run by the university here. Um, they're doing anti-ageing anti research and dementia research and that type of thing. Uh, that's based there, I think. Uh, the university set it up. I think there's two or three universities involved and they get government funding for the research. So it's, a, it's an interesting place. I'm not associated with it really because I'm not really a biomedical man. I prefer to do the holistic version. But uh, some of what they're doing is interesting. Anyway, back to the podcast. Uh, I started with with the the intention of doing 10 minutes a day regularly and uploading the radio show, which I've achieved for the last two weeks. So that's that's basically what I've done. It's been more than 10 minutes, but I'm doing 10, 10 or 15 minute blocks simply because it's it's easier for people to listen to 10 or 15 minute blocks. It seems to be reasonably attractive to people not that i've got a huge amount of listeners or anything but i went from number 2100 and something when i first started and i'm up to number 401 now and that's in two weeks of regular posting so there's about a hundred people either downloading or playing the podcast every day which i think is all all right for for two weeks work I think that's pretty good for two weeks' work. And I've got some of the numbers here. I'll describe what Podomatic gives me as statistics because it's interesting what they're giving me and it, it's exactly the right statistics for me. So on the on the analytics page, they gave me they give me the number of plays, the number of downloads, the number of likes, and the number of embeds. So the number of people that have copy pasted the podcast so they can do it on the, on their own site or whatever it gives me the number of playlists the number of followers actually i've lost a follower from yesterday but I, but there was there was only one there anyway so uh the number of comments the number of visits to the page and then it gives me an overall rank and a category rank now so i didn't have in, any real targets for the downloads and plays likes embeds playlists none of those things i had targets for but in my head when i started i decided i wanted to be num in the top five of the category that i chose i chose the spirituality category even though it's a it's quite a broad podcast i'm not limiting myself to spirituality on the podcast but uh, i chose spirituality as a category and decided i want to be in the top five 
and I'm I'm not worried about the overall rank as long as I can get into the top five in spirituality. Then then I'm a happy man, very happy man in fact. And I'm at the moment I'm in I'm at number twelve, so that's in two weeks. So I'm getting quite close, which is why I'm excited about it and why I want to talk about it, because it's something that's. Uh, it's the right time for me to be doing this. That's what it feels like. So I've got, a, I've got a good feeling about it. My gut feeling tells me that the way the, the, way the analytics are set up, I'm, I'm used to working in a call center. So I'm used to working to, to targets where you've got to do a certain number of phone calls a day. You've got to have a certain number of, uh, appointments per day then you've got to have a certain number of confirmed appointments in the week and a certain sometimes a certain number of sales for the month uh, so I'm used to I've been given targets like that for years in the call center it's a home improvement call center so it's double glazing windows it's windows conservatories kitchens bathrooms uh, at one point we were doing extensions, but they don't do those anymore. Uh, sunrooms they do. Uh, at one point we were doing solar panels as well, but we don't do those anymore. Um, I don't work there anymore, but uh, they they change their products and they change the way they do things. Every now and again, the product mix changes. And then they, the way the commission structure works and the way the targets work changes when the products change. So... I'm used to I'm used to working the targets is kind of the point I'm making. So my head, I think in that way. So when I start a podcast, I need to set a target so that I can make sure that I'm being consistent, persistent, and getting some kind of momentum going with it. And if I can see, I can see in the figures that there's momentum there. So. Initially, when I started, I was I was labeling, I was titling the podcast just episode one, episode two, whatever, and that's changed slowly over the last couple of weeks. So I've started playing about and being a bit bit more creative with the with the titles of these things. So I'll give you an idea of some of the some of the titles of the podcasts that I've posted over the last. Uh, over the last week, say. so as a on the on the sixth of April, which is about about four days ago, exactly four days ago, I posted a just a seven minute seven minute piece titled "A Conversation About Symbolic Hierarchy," and then on the next day, I titled the piece an epigenetic theory of evolutionary psychology and a lobster thought experiment. Then on that same day, the next one I did was, that was a five minute piece, just, just me talking off the top of my head, all of these things are. The next one is eight and a half minutes and it was based on uh, an encounter I had with Facebook fact checking uh, where they, I posted a video and they, they flagged it as false information. Uh, well, it was a video of, of Dr. Tess Laurie, 
being interviewed by Dr. John Campbell and talking about ivermectin. So I questioned that on Facebook and then I recorded a podcast about questioning it on Facebook and uh, I titled that, How Can a Meta-Analysis of 25 Health Studies Using an Approved Procedure Be False Information? And it's an, it's an eight and a half minute piece. Uh, the same day, so there was three, three podcasts really. It's the same podcast, just broken into three sections. On the same day, I posted 15 minutes uh, titled Questions About Facebook Fact-Checking. So you can see there's a theme, there was a theme to the first few. And I, I was enthusiastic about talking, so it was easy for me to talk about that particular topic. And then on the same day, I posted a, a question about about human evolution, about evolutionary psychology and epigenetics, uh, titled, Are Humans Being Mind Controlled by Lobsters? Which I thought was quite a clever title <laughs> and a good question. And it was just, a, that was a response to Jordan Peterson. Uh, Jordan Peterson's been talking for years about lobster hierarchies and territoriality and how humans are their behavior is the same basically uh, i question that uh, it turns out that humans and lobsters have got a common evolutionary ancestor but but they're not part of the same evolutionary chain uh, so i can i can legitimately question what he's saying uh, I took a slightly different tack on this particular piece. It's four minutes. So it was just me speaking off the top of my head, asking a question about whether Jordan Peterson was was accurate or not. Uh, and that it, part of that part of the thought process that brought that up was me watching Teen Wolf endlessly for the past three months or whatever it's been. I've got through six seasons now. I just finished season six yesterday. And uh, the wisdom of Teen Wolf has been highly influential on me for the last three months. Uh, I've enjoyed it immensely. Uh, entertaining Hawkeum is the best way to, to talk about Teen Wolf. Anyway, so that particular podcast got 19 players and five downloads. So not a huge number. None of these things are huge numbers. The Epigenetic Theory podcast got 26 players and 18 downloads. Well, you, you've got to remember, this is in two weeks. So it's that's not bad for two weeks. That's uh, what's that, 36, 44, 44 interactions for... For a five-minute piece, so with with the the idea of doing ten minutes is that I can I can structure things very t and be very targeted, which means that I can use targeted headlines and targeted hashtags 
on each section. So it's like doing a radio show, but doing it in four sections, in effect. And that's that's really what what this podcast builds up to be. So it's over over three days or four days. If I'm doing fifteen minutes a day, it works out at the equivalent amount of content as a radio show. So it's not too stressful. I don't find it particularly stressful. I've started reading news articles a little bit the last yesterday particularly. I read read two two or three news articles from the Daily Telegraph. Uh, and that was my podcast for the day, was just commenting on the on the news articles. So a diff like a different structure to the radio show, but because it's ten ten or fifteen minute blocks, I can play with it, I can experiment with it, and experiment with the headlines and experiment with the hashtags and experiment with where I'm posting it, see how much how much interaction I get with with different places. So the numbers are the key to the whole thing, really. Uh, which brings me to Pythagoras. Pythagoras, but by, by way of podcasting. So at some point I'm going to do a, a conversation with a friend of mine in Edinburgh about Pythagoras uh, for a project she calls, I can't remember what she calls it, Philosophy for Dummies wasn't what she called it. What was the, she, she used a different phrase. I don't know, but it's a, it's a beginner's philosophy conversation, basically. So I was going to talk about Pythagoras with her. Um, Pythagoras, is, the main idea is all is number. Uh, Pythagoras was a, a pre-Socratic philosopher, lived about... 2,500, maybe 2,600 years ago, off the top of my head, and he was vegetarian. He set up, he set up a little commune in Italy, Creton, I think it was, and uh, and the that particular community was vegetarian, and they were kind of they were it was a, a mystical like a mystical philosophy based around numbers, based around the, the mystical qualities of numbers. And numbers have still got mystical qualities today. We're just, uh, we're just a bit more precise about it, uh, which is why I find this podcast analytics so interesting. So this really is Pythagorean philosophy, uh, using Podomatic as an example. The magic of numbers. So... Because of the numbers, because there are numbers there, I'm enthusiastic, and because I'm enthusiastic, I'm consistent, and because I'm consistent, the podcast's got momentum, and because the podcast's got momentum, I'm enthusiastic. So it's a it's a a circle of positive feedback all the way down the line, and that's because of the numbers. That's because I've got something in front of me that I can see. And that then that motivates me. Uh, yeah, so that's what I want to say about the podcast. Uh, it's interesting. I'll probably do every now and again. I'll do a, a report on the numbers because it's it is something that absolutely fascinates me. And if I can find a way to get more than about a hundred interactions, 
then then I'll be happy. I've, I'm, I've got to raise. I've raised my target to two hundred interactions. Yeah, uh, Mitty's asking me a question in the chat room, which I've just spotted. So I've just got back to the chat room after my little thing. Yeah, I do record on the phone, Mitty. Um, and it's all, it's okay. It works reasonably well. Uh, the quality's not marvelous, but for for speaking for for a podcast, it's all right. And I, I'm in I'm in my my apartment anyway, so quite often I've got the neighbours are a bit noisy sometimes, and I've had uh, I've had workmen uh, changing doors. They're changing the front doors on the apartments. So there was there was four days last week where where there was banging and hammering and drilling going on, which means I couldn't record in the mornings, and I had to do my recordings in the afternoon. Oh, that's another point. Yeah, the most of the interaction I'm getting is from the United States on the podcast. So there are people. I know there are people listening in France, Germany. Uh, where else? Australia, New Zealand, Qatar. I think I saw on the, on the list as well. So there's there's people listening all over the world, but primarily the interaction I'm getting is the states at the moment because of, because of the way that I'm I've been because of the timing of how I've been posting it. I think so. For me, three o'clock is. Late obviously late afternoon, but for the states, it's mid morning, and I've been, that's that's when I've been starting to record. So I record late afternoon here, and post it to mid morning in the states, which gives me a good ten hours to promote what I've what I've just posted. Yeah, you can record on the on the phone, Mitzi. It's uh. There's not very much bass comes through recording music. I've used my phone to record music off and on for years and posted on YouTube, but it's uh, it tends to knock out the bass and there's too much treble on there. But it's all right for it's all right for speech. Definitely, I would use the phone for speech. All right, let me let me post the. The link. Now that I've been talking about it for half an hour, I should really post the link, shouldn't I? So let me do that. I'll just remind people that Revolution Radio is listener-supported. Uh, we're all volunteers. So if you do feel like making a donation, uh, you'll find that there's a, a tab at the top in the menu when you get to revolution.radio. So, and I've just posted the link to to my podcast in the chat room. If anybody wants to have a look, feel feel free. Uh, a lot of my activity now is is at the podcast. Uh, so I'm going to stick to one hour a week at Rev Radio. I was going to I was going to open up Rev Radio, but. For the moment, I think I'll go. I'll do the podcast because I'm. I've got enthusiastic now that I've tested it, and I, I want to do things that I'm enthusiastic about. 
that I'm that I'm not hitting resistance to. And and there's a clear run with the podcast. I've got the numbers, and I know how I wanted to go. And it's just a matter of promoting. One thing I learned by one thing I learned from from the home improvements industry is that that doing the doing the actual home improvements is only about forty percent of the business, and the other sixty percent of the business is marketing. They've got a huge marketing operation. Obviously, the call center. Uh, they do TV advertising. They do radio advertising. So, sixty percent of the business is is marketing, and forty percent is actually dealing with fitting the fitting the products. So, I think podcasting is probably about the same. It's about forty percent recording the audio. And sixty percent marketing the marketing the podcast. At least that's that's how I'm looking at it at the moment. Until I get some actual figures, I'm just taking the figures from home improvements and kind of moving them over to podcasting as a place to start. And then when I get the actual amount of time that I'm spending in marketing and the time I'm spending in recording as a percentage, then I'll know exactly what it is. All right, we're halfway through, so I'm going to have a look for this this Hawkwind documentary that I was going to play from YouTube. Let me do that because there was a conversation about music music outdoors on the back of a truck. It seems appropriate that I that I can play this because I was thinking about playing again, playing it anyway. So let's see what I can't remember what it was called, but if I just put in. I should pull it up. Yeah, there was one F-bomb about four minutes in. So what I'm going to do is try and try and talk over the top of it. Let me share my screen. There's some very respectable rock and rollers out there that cite Hawkwind as a major influence in them. John Lydon from the Sex Pistols, he said there would have been no Sex Pistols if it wasn't for Brainstorm. All the punk bands, they were looking to Hawkwind as a role model, really. It was like Star Trek with long hair and drugs, yeah. I mostly drummed in the news. Oh, I got so hot and sweaty, I was just like a racehorse when I... Right, I'll move this to five. Then I'm going to miss Lemmy's F-bomb, hopefully. With the management company, and in walked this bunch of reprobate. And I can just let it play that way. Of war between fellowship and sole ownership. He was the first of almost 50 musicians to pass through Hawkwind over the last 37 So, Hawkwind was a band that was formed in, in Ladbroke Grove in London in the late 60s. I think they were originally called Band X. And then Hawkwind Zoo, and then they became Hawkwind. Uh, I'll just let the documentary play. Uh, you've got Nick Turner's on here, Michael Moorcock's on here, talking about the counterculture in Ladbroke Grove. Uh, I know the first 15 minutes doesn't have any swearing in it, so, and it's a BBC documentary, so 
if there's anything, I'll probably be able to spot where it's going to come from. But I'll just I'll set this rolling for 20 minutes, just because it's just interesting that it showed up as a conversation about music being played from a, from the back of a truck. That's exactly what Hawkwind used to do. Yes. Slattery was replaced by Hugh Lloyd Langton, and soon afterwards, the band went into the studio to record their first single. Because there was a cult following that had built up by that point, they sold records at sort of being, oh, this looks interesting, maybe we'll make an album. So the first album, I think, had this, captured the spirit of the band the most, for at the time, just played live in the studio, pretty much, the first album. The music scene of the time was heavily influenced by what was going on in the hippie movement in America. But instead of the flower power of San Francisco, Hawkwind grew out of the urban sounds of Ladbrook Grove. I think the Ladbrook Grove scene and, and around that area was rather like Greenwich Village, I suppose. There was a lot of very creative people there. It was quite exciting, really. At one party, I remember introducing Arthur Clarke to William Burroughs, which everybody thought would be impossible. You know, there was Clarke, the scientific chap, and Burroughs, the, the beat. And they'd gone on like a house on fire. They would not, you know, they just kind of stayed together the whole, the whole evening talking. I've never been in an environment, certainly in England or Great Britain even, where music so defined the environment and uh, very different and eclectic kinds of music. It was really great. Yeah, it was really fantastic. Drugs were very important, especially around Portobello. There was always lots of good marijuana, good hashish. Hash cooking, man. 16 traditional recipes, two shillings. Lots of great acid as well. But of course, there was speed and a few other dodgy things that didn't do so well for people. And it was that period. It was, you know, it was it was at the crossroads between the 60s and the 70s. The 70s hadn't really defined themselves yet. It was still early days. And in the middle of this were people like Hawkwind living on soulful and spiritual endeavor, basically. And I think that's what they wanted to do with their music. It was in Ladbrook Grove that the band first teamed up with Michael Moorcock, leading light of a new wave of science fiction writers. I was helping organize some gigs under the motorway. I'd already written some lyrics for Dave and Nick. They'd asked me for some lyrics. During the organizing of that particular gig, um, they said, why don't you come up on stage and perform them for us? So I did Sonic Attack and, uh, you know, things of that kind. Sonic Attack on your district, follow these rules. If you are making love, it is imperative to bring all bodies to orgasm simultaneously. Do not waste time blocking your ears. Do not waste time seeking a soundproof shelter. 
It's dystopian in that you're always issuing warnings, and that's what dystopia is about. But it, but I mean, you tend to issue the warnings because you're you're optimistic enough to think that by issuing the warning, something will change. You know, a lot of those lyrics, which were virtually psychotic in the world they were showing, were only being done in order to try to to change things. The people that use something must be part of it. That is what participatory democracy is. This Sir, is the acid test. <laughs> this is the only way to tell whether a person is in the alternative society or not. Yeah. Here you are. Yeah. Right. 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 Go ahead. Right. right. Burn the money. Right. You burn the money. That was the time. That was the zeitgeist. We really did think we could change things for the better. We certainly didn't think they would get as bad as they did get. Shops are free, houses are free, we don't need money, that's where it's at, that's what it... Ladwick Grove was home to the radical press, and one of the great gathering points for the underground communities was at the offices of Friends. Well, Friends magazine was a broadsheet journal, and it came out every two weeks, I think. It was like Oz... It was like uh, the International Times was the other one. Whatever was happening in the counterculture, there'd be a bit of politics. There'd be a bit of the, anyone that had a, an axe to grind against the man <laughs> would uh, could could come in there and you know vent their spleen basically. Hawkwind used Friends's office as a meeting place for when they did gigs, which was almost every day. So every day they would be in the office. The whole group, they'd come in one at a time. The, the room would immediately start resembling a, a Cheech and Chong movie. I mean, it was just smoke everywhere. They were the best times in that office were when they were there. They were kind of like the Pied Pipers, you know. I mean, okay, you know, it's the end of the underground, but here's Hawkwind, they, they're coming in and like, you know, we'll, we'll go off to a gig with them. And, uh, will still keep the spirit high. In the emerging corporate rock culture, the idealism of the 60s was becoming the hard currency of the 70s. But Hawkwind cast themselves as a people's band. We were at the other end of the music business. We were the alternative end. We did gigs whether they were free or were paid for because the bands needed exposure. That was the whole philosophy of it. And in a funny sort of way, uh, sort of the key people at the time were doing that as well. I mean, it's where John Lennon was, and it was Labrador Grove for John Lennon as opposed to Chelsea, which was once you made it and made some money, you moved down to Chelsea. <laughs> as leaders of the Ladbroke Grove scene, Hawkwind had established a cult following in London and beyond. They became the, the ambassadors of that whole Ladbroke Grove counterculture. They would go out into the provinces and play their, their kind of stoner rock. In each provincial town, there'd be three or four people who had some kind of access to, to cannabis, or maybe a bit of LSD, or maybe some form of speed. When Hawkwind played, you'd see those four people right in front of the stage, 
with a look of complete beautiful, you know, just home at last, you know, he'd look on their face. No one really thought about tomorrow, and no one in the band made much money, but then no one really cared. I'd never met a group who had such little regard for money. They were the last group in the world to have any kind of fame-seeking agenda. If it was a choice between playing a free gig and a paying gig, very often Hawkwind would have played the free gig. Dave was very agreeable to doing to doing free gigs. I think it depended partly on the individual politics of the people involved. If they approached me, I'd always say yes. <laughs> I used to do loads, you know, Friends of the Earth, anybody really. Gay pride or, you know, anybody really. The ethos of the underground was free. The White Panthers supplied food at all the festivals for free. The band was very associated with the White Panthers in many ways. There was no sort of radicalness from the point of uh, them doing blowing up buildings or anything like that. The spirit of the free gigs under the Westway soon headed into the country with the rise of the free festival scene. The rural effect, which generally free festivals tended to be, um, had a very different effect on the music. Uh, it tended to be more extended because there were no time limits. Um, you would sometimes have bands playing as the sun came up. You'd have some bands playing at three o'clock in the morning. You'd have campfires. It added a very different dimension to everything that was going on. So three festivals we play out on the stage, and the playing festivals we sort of would try to do a, an outside thing, you know, free for the people like who couldn't get in and stuff. But I mean, that's what we've done at the Isle of Wight with the big Canberra City thing. Hawkwind were part of the forces of misrule that turned the 1970 Isle of Wight Festival into a standoff between the music business and the alternative society. In Isle of Wight, I think uh, Mick Farron and the White Panthers, along with Hawkwind, who were playing outside in the tent, marched in and sort of opened the gates and let people in. And there was this big to-do, and they had this Mexican standoff with the White Panthers and the Isle of Wight Festival. Irate, militant pop fans have stormed the fences. They believe that pop music should be free. Last night came the worst incident of all. It looks peaceful now, but they were hurling stones, bricks over the wall at the security officers and their dogs. While the Isle of Wight saw the last major performances of rock icons Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison of The Doors, Hawkwind were on the other side of the fence, literally and ideologically as they played on the festival parameter in a state-of-the-art inflatable dome dubbed Canvas City. Canvas City was amazing. I mean, the whole Isle of Wight experience was amazing, really. I remember at one point, everyone had got spiked up. You couldn't pick up anything to drink without... There was some girl there, uh, well, she was called Sunshine, with loads of orange sunshine acid. Although people had taken it anyway, everything you picked up to try and drink had acid in it, you know. And somebody turned up with a bottle of apple juice, pure bottle, looked like pure apple juice, and passed it round. Oh, great. I mean, it's apart from lukewarm water or something, a few glugs in this apple juice. The hallucinogenics started clicking. Somebody struck my guitar on my head. All right, we're on now. Hey, what? <laughs> We had all the gear set up to play, and I'd just gone in there first, all the rest of the band behind me. As I was walked in, they slammed the door shut, wouldn't let anybody in or out because the machine had broken, keeping the thing up, and it was slowly coming down. 
led in through up some stairs and through a door. Then you had to close that door and down steps into, into the actual auditorium. And this thing was getting lower and lower and there were women screaming. It was really getting hairy, you know. I was being led in there and I, I, I literally, I was literally descending into hell. Really. There all these people freak dancing. It's quite a gory light show, freaky light show. So I just hit a chord and this whole cacophony kicked off. I recall getting and praying, but really praying, which Nick, Nick said a couple of days later, I mean, once he parted and met up again. You know what he did on stage? It looked really good, and he got down on your knees and prayed. I mean, not realising you know, I, I was down on my knees, really meaning it, you know. It must have affected the, the music a great deal, really. Yeah. It was a very much shared experience with the audience. You know, I suppose half of them were, were on drugs anyway, you know. We all took off together, really. We all, off we went on a little space journey together. The Isle of Wight put Hawkwind on the map as music's anarchic outsiders. But Hugh's experience prompted his departure for Leo Sayer's backing band. Meanwhile, Hawkwind pushed further at the edges of sanity with the arrival of Robert Calvert. Robert's position in the band at the beginning was brought in by Nick Turner because Robert was writing. He was writing lots of ideas. They were sort of beginning to scan out. I used to live in Margate in, in the 60s. Well, I grew up there, actually. And um, he was a mate of mine from there. He'd always wanted to be um, a fighter pilot. And for some reason or other, he ended up being a poet. And then when I became involved in Hawkwind, I, invi I invited him to be involved as well because I thought he was a very creative person and he became the poet of the band. Well, he was a bit further out than most of us because he was quite mentally unstable, you know. I mean, he was all pretty far out, but he was really a bit far out on top of that, you know what I mean? But his mother reckoned that he had nervous breakdowns every 18 months. So he would go from being really depressed to being completely manic. Other times he'd um, be having a nervous breakdown. He'd go for a 20-mile route march, you know, in his army uniform and end up in a loony bin. He always wore these tweed suits looked well-dressed and his clothes were clean. It wasn't, uh, he didn't fit quite into the whole situation. Calvert wrote fiction and poetry for the underground press and would later make forays into theater and novel writing, as well as becoming one of Hawkwind's key songwriters. The only person who was giving it any kind of intellectual description was Calvert. In a sense, it was his Achilles heel. He never really wanted to be a the great rock and roll performer that he was. He always wanted to be taken seriously as a poet. Once he got involved, the band started expanding its, its presentation, its ideas, the shows were full of great lighting. In Search of Space was the band's breakthrough album. It was the era of the Apollo moon landings and the spiders from Mars. Outer space was in the air, and Hawkwind were ready for takeoff. Space rock had been born. When the time is low, 
The album came with Calvin artist Barney Bubbles' Hawkwind Log, which envisioned the LP as a two-dimensional trip in space and time. Lots of Barney's ideas, you know, that were incorporated in that. He and Robert got together over the concept of this spaceship that lands on Earth and becomes two-dimensional, really off-the-wall, wacky, very interesting and metaphysical and mythological and science-fictional and science-fantasy. The term space rock come up when we was in Clearwater, and yeah, it pretty much summed us up, really because we're all really spaced out and really rocking. <laughs> it was psychedelic. It was psychedelic space as opposed to space. And to a certain extent, the Barney drawings and influences, and it certainly led in that direction. Hawkwind's use of heavy trance rhythms and electronics was closer to the new German bands, such as Amondul, Cannes and Neu, than to anything going on in Britain. I think the science fiction element comes from the sounds. If you think about it, you have this audio generator in the background, which the only other band in the world using an audio generator at the time was Silver Apples. And Dick Nick would have these wonderful sounds going across the albums that were sort of spacey sounds. And because that was spacey sound, it was an inevitable thing that we're going to sort of follow that path. Former roadie Dick Mick is soon to be joined by another roadie elevated to the stage, Del Detmar. Dick Mick and Del Detmar, really good company. They seem to be to be like a couple of guys that were like, you know, pot dealers that had just fallen into music making by happenstance. It was happenstance that brought another key member to the band. So I just come out of the Hendrix roadie job, you know. And then uh, I was in a squat in Gloucester Road and I met Dick Mick. One of the chicks living there picked him up in a boozer or something and brought him back and he was on his way to India. And he was going in the wrong direction anyway, he was going west, you know. <laughs> but uh, we discovered that we had a mutual interest in seeing how long the human body could be made to jump about without stopping. Yeah, he was more into um, uppers and downers rather than psychedelics. I don't think he was that much into psychedelics at all, um, which the rest of the band were large. Lemmy first joined the band at a gig at a squat in Powys Square in September 1971. I never picked up a fucking bass before I went to that show in Powys Square in my life. Never played bass, never touched one. And they said, who plays bass? And Dick Mick said, he does. And I thought, I don't play bass, what are you talking about? And I walked up and Turner Helpful has ever said, make some noises in E. This is called You Shouldn't Do That. Did you first see Hawkwind before you joined them, and what, what were they like? They were around us, and they were terrifying. Like, I mean, I thought, I've got to join these guys, I can't watch them. Because there were 600 people doing this all together at the same time, you know, like athletic fit. It was kind of heavy, and so people that were on downers could like, oh, hey, man, this is kind of heavy, you know. And people who smoked pot were like, yeah, because there's all these textures in the sound, you know. It wasn't like Jerry Garcia who would like would play these incredible guitar solos. We didn't know what the fuck we were doing. We didn't make any attempt to understand synthesizers. We just got, I mean, Dick was on this ring modulator thing and Dell, who was playing the synthesizer, had no previous experience of it whatsoever. He just bought the booklet and sat there reading it while he was doing it. I mean, I don't know what it sounded like, but it must have been interesting from time to time when he was like turning the page, you know what I mean? Yeah, it was, it was experimental in the true sense, you know. 
we really were trying to find some new way of 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 doing music, some you know, and and using the electronics um, rather than simply using the electronics to be a kind of a, a you know amplification for for acoustics. We were actually all right. So that that was originally a BBC Four documentary. Uh, combination of Michael Moorcock and Hawkwind was a tremendous, tremendous combination. I remember a, a gig I went to see the first time I saw them with the Newcastle City Hall at the uh, Chronicles of, of the Black Sword tour, which was based on the Chronicles of Elric, which was, was a series of books written by Michael Moorcock. And... Uh, it was basically Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> they had all this sword and sorcery stuff going on on stage. And I'm just sat there going, what on earth is going on here? What have I let myself in for? But I loved them at that point. I'd, I'd bought like three albums by that point. And I was very, very into Hawkwind. And I like theatrical rock. I like, I like rock with theatre. Um, I remember... One Friday night, about five or six years ago, I went to a, a pub in Newcastle called Trillions, which is a rock pub. They have gigs on Fridays and Saturday nights. And there was an Alice Cooper tribute act on. And bearing in mind, this is a bar. It's not, it's not a stadium or an arena or it's not, a, it's not a main municipal hall or anything. It's a bar with 200 people in it and a little stage set up. And this called Gallus Cooper, this band. And uh, they did the full Alice Cooper show, including at one point the guy had a python wrapped around his neck. <laughs> so it was literally the full Welcome to My Nightmare show. Plus plus some teenage Frankenstein and all that. There was a guy wandering around with a Frankenstein head, big papier mache Frankenstein head on. And they were, you could, I mean, with this, this bar, they the band, the band gets changed. The dressing room's in the car park next door, so all their all their gear, all their props was was in the car park, and they were coming in and out through the fire exits. But it was just one of the best gigs I've ever been to in my life. It was amazing because they absolutely, obviously, absolutely love Alice Cooper, and they love doing the shows, and they love the theatrics of it. I mean. If you weren't if you were weren't absolutely in love with doing that kind of theatrical show, why would you buy a boa constrictor to use on a rock in a rock show in a bar, in a basement bar in Newcastle? Honestly, one of the free gig, absolutely free gig, no no stress. I just thought I like Alice Cooper. I've seen Alice Cooper a couple of times at the City Hall, and. Uh, Tribute acts, tribute acts, tribute acts can be very, very good indeed, and they're a case in point. It's like they're obviously fans; they put their heart and soul into everything they were doing, and I just loved it. I loved it, and pub gigs can be like that. That they've got, they've got heart and soul, because people are doing it for expenses, basically. So if you can cover your expenses and get some beer money, they do a gig. And nobody's going to actually make any money. That's just something people do at the weekend when they've got time after work or whatever. But absolutely phenomenal. 
Uh, I don't know whether they still exist or not, but I did see a, a Led, Led Zeppelin jazz tribute band as well one year. That was about 10 years ago. It was on my birthday. So I went to the jazz cafe for this Led Zeppelin jazz tribute. Uh, phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. All right. I'll see you. Barbara Jean Lindsay, The Cosmic Oracle. If you have questions about your past lives or future plans, need answers from the cosmos about your love life or career, or just want to keep your finger on the pulse of the planet, check out my show, The Cosmic Oracle, here on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Be evasive. But that doesn't mean that they're telling the truth as opposed to fiction. And Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. And there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came and unto the daughters of men, indicating that there were giants before the Nephilim. And sons of God, plural. They weren't talking about Jesus coming down. No, no, that, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I'm Steve Crawford, host of Factor Theory Live. Join me every Sunday night from 10 p.m. till midnight Eastern Standard Time on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Check it out. Thank you for listening to Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Any commercial advertising you may hear in this program is of the sole discretion and benefit of the host of whose program you are listening to. Revolution Radio does not endorse any commercial products, nor does it accept monetary compensation for on-air advertising of commercial products, nor will it ever. We are and shall remain 100% listener supported. Any product advertising on this program are considered used at higher risk, and Revolution Radio shall not be held liable for any claims or damages received from any product advertised within this program. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps.